Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The windows overlooking the Plaza de Bib Arambla have been tightly shuttered against the moonlight. Pavestones suffocate under a deluge of books, codices with wooden covers, as well as loose pages, heartlessly ripped from their bindings. Handwritten in Arabic, Aramaic, and Hebrew, many of these works are illuminated with gold leaf or inscribed with exquisite calligraphy, only to be thrown together like corpses in a heap. Thousands of tomes lie strewn about the square, stacked as high as the shelves they once occupied in the libraries of Al-Andalus. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Joyce Yarrow about her historical fiction, contemporary magical realism, suspense novel. 500 years after forcing its Jewish population to either convert, leave, or die, Spain offered citizenship to descendants of those who were expelled during the Inquisition. It was a powerful attempt at atonement, but the offer ended in October of 2019. In Zahara and the Lost Books of Light, Yarrow focuses on a Seattle journalist who travels to Spain in the summer of 2019 to claim her citizenship. While delving into her family history, she also discovers a hidden library of Jewish and Muslim sacred writings that had been saved from the Inquisition's bonfires. A delay prevents her from getting to her meeting with the lawyer helping her with her citizenship forms. And when he's found nearly dead in his office, Alianor begins a scary and challenging journey filled with history, family, politics, and hope in humanity. Hi, Joyce. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's a real pleasure to be here. So how did a song inspire you to write Zahara and the Lost Books of Life? Well, I think I should give you a little background on me as a singer. Um, I I went to the High School of Music and Art in New York City and majored in voice. And singing and songwriting was a huge part of my life before I became a novelist. And in this group that I belong to, Abrace, which is a world music group, um, we sang music from all over the world. And I decided I wanted to learn a song in Ladino because I have um, a Jewish background And I was really curious about the music from my culture that I had never experienced. And so I went to see a cantor at at the local synagogue, and she gave me a bunch of music, among which was Quando Reine Murad, which is about the birth of Abraham. And every time we sang this song, uh, when we performed it at festivals, I would introduce it by saying that maybe someday um, the members of the Abrahamic religions would start to recognize their shared ancestry and uh, and live in peace. And that's what really inspired me to start working on Zahara because I started looking for examples of when that had actually happened in medieval Spain. 
Mm. Alianor, your protagonist, is dealing with a lot of personal loss in her life. How does that make her receptive to what's going to happen to her? Well, she um, has built up a lot of strength in her that she's had to deal with these losses at a young age. And she also has a gift. She has second sight. And it's a gift that in the beginning she rejects in her life because she's afraid uh, of these visions that she has where she sees through uh, the eyes of her female ancestors. It's very frightening for her. But at the same time, um, having lost her mother and had a vejita with her mother, she um, realizes that this is something that she has to accept and deal with. So at first she calls them vejitas locas, which in Ladino means crazy visions, crazy visits. But gradually, as she progresses through the book and her visions begin to help her um, when she gets into trouble and she needs more information, she starts to value the gift that she has. And I think uh, in many ways that is what the book is about on a personal level, is accepting the gifts that we have, even though at First, they might not seem like blessings, that many of the bad things that happen to us, we can um, turn into blessings. And this is what Alianor uh, finally succeeds in doing. But in the beginning of the book, it's a very difficult situation for her. So Alianor, like you, lives in Seattle. Uh, she has grandparents uh, who, who spoke Ladino, Judeo-Espanol, and she recalls these lovely phrases, sayings, little tidbits of Ladino wisdom. My favorite one was, there's no limit to a lie. La mentira no tiene cabo. I love that one. Can you share how you learned this? Is it part of your own inheritance from your own grandparents? No, it was part of my research. And maybe I've always wished that I had grandparents like that, but um, I created them. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the reasons that we write you know, is to experience people that we haven't experienced before and have them be close to us. And so um, I found this book of Ladino phrases, and some of them just seemed to come out of uh, her grandmother's mouth, you know, when she spoke with her, especially about the mentira, about the lies, um, because in her family, there were hidden branches to her family that she sensed were there. And part of her trip to Spain was to try to uncover what really happened uh, during World War II in her family. And she has fajitas that take her over the Pyrenees, uh, which was a route that Jews took when they were fleeing France, occupied France, into Spain. And I was very surprised to find that, um, you know, although Spain expelled all the Jews in 1492, it's ironic that during World War II, the opposite happened, and many Jews came back to Spain and traveled through there and were allowed to do so as they uh, escaped the Nazis. So that, uh, Eleanor has a vejita in which she sees her grandmother on the Freedom Trail, which leads from France into Spain. Uh, and her grandmother became one of the rescuers, one of the guides on the Freedom Trail, uh, where she met her future husband, who turned out to be a Muslim and uh, from North Africa. And although this was a really good thing for her, um, it did create a breach in the family, which sometimes happens when someone marries outside their religion. And that became a whole issue um, for Alianor's ancestors that um, they expelled her from her own family. And in a way, um, Alianor 
she wanted to reunite her family. And that was part of her quest in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Why was she so grateful to her mother for teaching her to repeat the words, I belong to me? Well, when she has these fajitas, she feels that she has been taken over, um, that she's being dominated in some way by some by her own gift, that it's out of control. And this came out of a personal experience of my own with my son when he was about three years old. Um, he was terrorized by this raccoon that came from our backyard. And, and Ian was like standing at the top of the stairs and this enormous raccoon with the little babies was just hissing at him. And the next day he was afraid to go outside, you know, and I said to him, you know, you belong to yourself. You know, you can, if you just say, conquer your fear, you know, I, I can conquer my fear. You'll be able to do that. And a couple of days later, I, I heard him as he crossed the driveway saying to himself, you know, I am conquering my fear. And, <laughs> and he repeated it over to himself. And so I sort of adapted that a little bit for Alien, where I changed the words, but it actually came out of that family experience. I was so proud of him. Mm-hmm. She also says, uh, Alienor says, I consider myself a logical person mistakenly connected to the inexplicable. Ah, yes. Can well, you I think say that's, more? Yes, I can. It's, I think that's something I relate to very much as well. I think many of us have a mystical side um, as well as a logical side. It's sort of something that we're brought up to, to try to deal with. And so as children, our imaginations might go really wild and free. But as we get older, we get a little brainwashed. And in Alianor's case, she became a journalist because she wanted to absorb other people's experiences and to, to use logic and empathy um, and to, in some ways, to avoid her own gifts because she was frightened of them. And so her way of dealing with that was to adopt a profession where facts are very valuable uh, and to continue on in that trail until she was no longer able to do that, until her vejitas became equally important to her. And she started to realize it's like a process of integration, actually. She started to realize that she needed to be both of these things, both her mystical side and her logical side meet in the book, and they give her a tremendous amount of strength eventually. Mm -hmm. The the premise for her trip to Spain, aside from doing a journalistic report for her newspaper and wanting to see family is that she's seeking citizenship. Can you explain the historical circumstances that led to an American seeking citizenship in Spain? Well, it's interesting. Um, I I was flying home from California and uh, I got off the plane and my husband met me at the airport and he had a newspaper in his hand. And it was a story about the first Sephardic Jew from Seattle who was going to apply for Spanish citizenship. This was a few years ago. And he said to me, I think this is your book, because I had been telling him that I was interested in writing a book about medieval Spain and about the convivencia, and, um, but looking for a modern way in which I could connect all of these uh, fairly complex areas into one strong central story. And so I went to the University of Washington And I attended a lecture given by a Spanish lawyer on the new law that they had recently passed in Spain uh, that invited um, Jews from all around the world to apply for citizenship. 
And so that's the first scene that takes place in Seattle in the book was this um, gathering at Kane Hall um, at the University of Washington. And um, there were many people there. And I could tell, I, I took a friend of mine who was very upset about it. She said, well, why would we even go back? You know, because they threw us out. The Inquisition was so cruel. But there were also people who felt that this was a great opportunity for them. Uh, for instance, their children could inherit this citizenship and uh, be EU citizens, which is, you know, quite a benefit uh, to, and expands many, a lot of potential in their lives, you know, for economic progress. And there were many motivations, I think, for people to accept Spain's offer. Mm-hmm. But it did end in 2015. No, in 2019. Yes, 2019. Yeah. So that's, I set the book uh, just right before it ended, I think about six months and also it required, uh, Spain required documentation, and not everybody kept documentation for 500 years. No, I, and I think um, it, it, but it did, in a way, it inspired people to go back and look at their roots um, and reconnect, you know, in order to to sort of strengthen that connection. And I, from what I heard, the um, the requirements were not that strict. I mean, in other words, if your rabbi said, oh, well, this is a person who's really interested in, um, in their Sephardic heritage, that would be enough to be vouched for, say, by a member of your community. Uh, there's many ways to show your interest. Uh, and they just wanted people that were sincerely connected to the Sephardic culture. Uh, and they weren't hard to find. I mean, in Seattle, we have a group of Sephardim, maybe 5,000 people, which is one of the largest populations here uh, in, in the United States. And so so quite a few people applied Um and many of them have gotten their citizenship. And some of them will use actually use that benefit. And for others, I think it was a matter of restitution, of feeling that they got what was owed to them. Uh, and in some way, it, it was a healing experience. And I think that for Spain itself, the people that passed this law, that's what they were looking for as well, you know, was to heal some of these wounds um, that had been inflicted on their country because um, the Sephardim brought so much to Spain. I mean, in fact, when they were expelled, um, the Ottoman, you know, from the Ottoman Empire, the caliph from the Ottoman Empire said, you know, okay, you know, come to us, come to Africa, come to the Ottoman Af- Empire, uh, and it's Spain's loss is our gain. Mm-hmm. Alianor is confronted with a long-brewing political situation in Spain that involves a our right-wing nationalist party, which seeks to ban immigrants, among other things. Can you say more about them? Yeah, she. it's a shocking discovery for her, and I won't give away too much, but there is someone that she actually meets and knows uh, who's involved with this party and has many ambitions. And this party, um, they use uh, some of some of the conflict that has been going on uh, between different racial and ethnic groups to promote their agenda. And um, the books that have been hidden in Spain that she becomes involved in protecting um, get involved in the middle of all of this controversy. Because these books um, that were written by Muslim and um, Hebrew writers mainly they do prove the existence of a convivencia in Spain in the Middle Ages. So that instead of saying that Spanish culture came, you know, directly from the Romans or whatever, and just ignoring this whole period of history, the books prove 
um, that there was a collaboration of fertilization between different religions and cultures that happened in Andalusia in, the me in medieval times. And it was a very beautiful time. It wasn't perfect. There were many conflicts as well. But there's sort of this current that goes through history. It's, I think of it as an underground river. And all the artists and poets are connected. The musicians are all connected by this river of creativity that goes way beyond any kind of definitions that we have of ourselves ethnically or racially. It has to do with our souls as human beings. And so that becomes what's at stake. And the book is protecting the soul. Mm -hmm. Well, when Eleanor is exposed to the Hidden Library, she listens to a discussion about how the Secret Library's books are cataloged. Uh, can you say something about how the disciplinary, um, how disciplinary boundaries were blurred and the cataloging is also blurred because of it during the period of medieval Spanish history that was, as you mentioned, the convivencia, which means coexistence. So, so I'm asking you about blurred disciplinary boundaries. So say between poetry and philosophy and music, mm -hmm. that, yeah, that they all work together. And I think, um, you know, I, I wish that I could have been there personally and attended some of those events because I just imagine, you know, people sitting by the fire, uh, drinking wine and reciting poems and having, you know, kind of a competitive uh, relationship to, to that. Uh, so in, in a way, there was a beginning of um, our modern sense of um, multicultural, multidisciplinary interactions. Right. And they couldn't figure out where all the books belonged. Yeah. So they, uh, well, they were grouped, um, you know, by uh, the, um, the person who designed the libraries uh, used the sephirots. He used the tree of life um, as a design. And the different aspects of the tree of life, of philosophy, um, so that there would be a library for spiritual books, there would be a library for knowledge, uh, for science. Uh, and so they did come up with some categories that were really based in the tree of life that is sh a shared image between all three Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. About the group, um, among the, their goals, uh, the group that is uh, that. Eleanor is confronted by. Among their goals is to return to both 15th Inquisition, 15th century Inquisition values, which included burning books and tossing out Jews, and the one party military dictatorship of Franco. So, uh, just to remind everybody, Franco's regime is now a huge embarrassment in Spain. Why are characters in the book trying to bring it back? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and I think in our own country, um, there are elements of this as well. And I can't really understand it, um, except that I think it has to do with trying to manipulate people through fear in order to gain power, you know, which is uh, exactly what Hitler did when he scared everyone um, and tried to paint the Jews, you know, as these terrible perpetrators of evil. Uh, that this has been something that has gone on for centuries, just the phenomena of the dictator. And there's some something in the human psyche. I mean, Carl Jung talked about it, uh, that we have this side to ourselves uh, that's very dark. Uh, and sometimes people are able to tap into that side. Uh, and so that the people who want more light uh, to be shined upon us need to work really hard sometimes to, um, to defeat them. 
And, you know, it's not, it's simple in the sense that light, you know, one candle in the darkness, as they say, you know, can light up a whole room, but you've got to find the fuel for it. You have to find people that are brave. And so um, the librarians uh, in Zahara who guard these books are really brave people in that, I mean, we're talking about 400 years that they've guarded them uh, and there would be grave consequences if they had been discovered uh, during Franco's reign. And even today, um, they, one of the conflicts in the book is whether or not they should go public with what they have and uh, allow people to see these books and, more importantly, to recognize what the books represent, that they are you know, the, soul, the shared soul of these three religions rather than the fragmentation uh, that you know, more, I guess you could call them fascists, uh, seek to, um, to divide our society in ways that um, are very unhealthy. And so these are people who really, uh, I guess throughout my life, I've met people like that, like in the civil rights movement here in America, you know, who really put their lives on the line uh, for what they believed in and to help others and to gain equality. And so it's a struggle I think the book has many elements of international interest in it in that way that uh, I think there are people all over the world right now who are struggling um, in India, uh, in Hungary, and in our country quite recently with our election, uh, people that are really struggling and trying to unify rather than divide. Mm -hmm. I love a good, strong female protagonist and Alianor is tough, one tough girl. So can you talk about that? Well, her strength um, comes in a way from her recognition of her weakness in the beginning. Um, I think that, you know, real strength has uh, at its core um, empathy, love. Uh, it's not really based on hatred. I don't think strength comes from anger. But strength to her comes from her understanding and I think she owes her mother a great deal in this regard and that um, that was inculcated in her uh, and her grandmother as well um, so that her culture that she was connected with has given her strength. And then um, being a journalist and the responsibilities that come with the ethical code of journalism. Um, so her strength is a strength that's it's somewhat intellectual, but it's also deeply emotional um, and that's the combination, I think, that carries us through when we go through hard times. We have to understand what's happening to us, but at the same time, um, we have to have, have the guts, you know, have the courage, you know, to push through uh, when we feel that something, when a wrong is happening and we want to right it. Uh, there's times when you just have to really take the plunge. And uh, she's not a superwoman, but she, she does find her inner strength. And she finds a lot of help as well. And it's not as if she goes over to Spain and saves everyone. You know, these librarians and her cousin who she meets, finally meets her second cousin, um, they're the ones who really have put their lives on the line. And Eleanor gradually starts to see her own role in that. So as a journalist, originally, she is a little bit removed because you have to be detached to be a journalist. But she starts to lose that detachment, and in its place comes her commitment. Mm -hmm. So interesting that you write about a library in which subjects overlap with each other because, as we spoke about before beginning the interview, 
Zahara and the Lost Books of Light dances between historical fiction, contemporary suspense, magical realism. So my question is, if you were a library, where would you shelve this book? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, my goodness. Um, The first word that comes to mind is humanism. I don't know if there is a humanism section, <laughs> but uh, that's, I think, what the, the value of this book is, is, is trying to, um, as Teo Ruiz, um, who won the Medal of Humanities uh, fairly recently, um, said about the book, uh, that it brings to light how, um, how our legacy of intellectual knowledge, how important it is. And in helping us, you know, to continue our civilization. And so there's a lot at stake here because I think, I mean, I love social media. I love music. I I really appreciate um, popular entertainment. But I also see that um, a great many people are becoming participants rather than creators and that we need more creators in the world. Um, And so that's one of the things that I dedicate the book to is the the human possibilities for our own creativity. Uh, And so I would put the book in the humanistic literature section if there was such a place. Okay. You also covered religious freedom and diversity as kind of a backdrop for the novel. So maybe there's a section about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that would go with with the whole idea of being a humanist. Okay. Which is, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what are you working on next? Well, I have a new book that is, it's not in the same genre. I seem to like to change genres a bit. It's called Sandstorm. Uh, and it's about a young woman who has a career as a criminal. She grows up under circumstances that sort of lead her along this path. And then she decides that she wants to go straight and uh, the book is about the challenges that she experiences in trying to cross back over into society. You know, what happens to someone when they've been totally alienated from the mainstream and then gradually are trying to work their way back in. Um, so it, it opens and it has a lot of hope in it, but it also opens with, with some pretty excruciating experiences that push her out of society. Hmm, sounds interesting. I'll look forward to it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today, Joyce. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been really great. I loved your questions. You take care, Galit. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Joyce Yarrow, author of Zahara and the Lost Books of Light. Hope all of you listeners are able to enjoy yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.